You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. We are going to be in Psalm 129 this, uh, this morning, which is our last of this summer's Christ in the Psalms. Uh, so if you want to open your Bible to Psalm 129, I'll read it here in a moment. Uh, I'm like excited about where we're going this fall with preaching. Uh, we'll get to Matthew later on this fall. We're going to take a, the next few weeks to look at just our mission to make disciples, talking about what is a disciple of Jesus and how do we grow as disciples? How do we help each other grow as disciples? That'll be the next few weeks, and then we'll get back into the Gospel of Matthew uh, in September. Uh, and this is our last Christ in the Psalms uh, psalm for this summer, which I'm a little bit disappointed in just because it's been so sweet working through the Songs of Ascent. Uh, also, I'm pumped about Psalm 130. And 131, two of my favorite psalms of all time. Uh, but the way that the Lord has been kind of working in my own heart through Psalm 129 uh, has been really significant over the last few days. And so uh, I'm eager for us to receive whatever the Lord has for us this morning. So again, we are Psalm 129. If you open your Bible there, that'd be wonderful. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love to give you one. We want to be a church family that's engaging with Jesus on Sundays, spending time in his word together. But also we want to be a church family that's learning to abide in him and abide in his word throughout the week. And just want to be a church family that spends time with Jesus in his word on a daily basis. So if you need a Bible, you're free to take that one home with you or to grab one from the info table uh, for free. Again, we are at Psalm 129. A song of ascents. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. So may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come before you right now and confess our need for you. Even as we've been in these psalms this summer, uh, we are being reminded how much we need you, that we can gather on Sundays, we can sing, we can play music, we can welcome one another, we can talk, we can preach, we can eat communion together, but unless you build, unless you restore, unless you heal, unless you transform, unless you move by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's vain. It's emptiness. It's like a wind that comes in and blows out and nothing changes. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in power today, that you would encourage the weary, that you would strengthen those who feel weak in their faith, that you would bind up the hurting, that you would heal the broken, that you would grow within all of us a resilient faith, where our faith feels fragile or feeble, would you bring strength? Would you grow up within us a confidence in your goodness and your reign and your love and the goodness of the gospel of Jesus 
that we'd be secure, stable, resilient followers of Jesus in this age. Would you do that through the power of your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I was thinking this past week about uh, my role as a father with four kids in different seasons of life and ages of life and different approaches to parenting and was reflecting on how different cultures have focused on different values and, uh, and different emphases in the ways that they approach parenting. And one particular culture came to mind as very different from ours, and that's Spartan culture of parenting, the Spartans. If you're not familiar with the Spartans, let's chat. Uh, let's chat about Spartan parenting. It's interesting, turns out. Um, so Spartans, if, if, if we're looking at the kind of like 5th and 4th century B.C., the Spartans, which is a city-state as part of like the Greek empire or the Greek nation, uh, the Spartans had a very unique approach to, to parenting. In particular for their boys, uh, when a child was born and was a boy, that boy would be brought before the elders of the community and they would assess the child's fitness, physical well-being, mental well-being, and only sort of totally, thoroughly healthy with no notable flaws or blemishes or issues would be kept. Other children would be tragically disposed of in their society. For those that were kept, it was said that they would be given a bath in wine, not as some cool honor, uh, but as a way to test the children because the weaker children wouldn't survive a bath in wine. As those children grew up, when a child was in a room that was dark and they were crying, and you think about in our culture just the propensity to go help the child, check, make sure its diaper's good, make sure it's okay, make sure it's not hurting, make sure everything's okay, crib safe. In their culture, they would absolutely not do that. This is like a cry it out times 10 method of parenting. They wanted their children to become comfortable being isolated, alone, and in the dark. From birth, all the way through six years, this was the basic approach to parenting. And those were the best years of that kid's life. Because from that point, at age seven, everything began to change. Parents at that point would take their children and deliver them over to the state. No more parenting, which financially is way more feasible, by the way. Um, <laughs> but still not advisable, uh, not advisable, but financially more feasible. Seven o'clock, seven years old, done. And so they'd hand their children over to the state. These boys would go into what was called agogi. Agogi was a military training program that began at age 17 and culminated at age 29 in three distinct stages from age seven, sorry, began at age seven to age 29. From age seven to age 17, these children would go through intense, rigorous training. They would be educated, they'd learn the arts, they'd learn different things, kind of classical education kind of things, but they also learned about pain. They learned about hardship. They learned about difficulty. The children at the age of seven would be put in a community of kids and they were intentionally fed less than they needed. They were intentionally fed less than they needed. In the face of their hunger, they are told to go steal, steal food to kind of get your fill. And if you got caught stealing, you would be severely punished. And so steal, but don't get caught. And that taught the kids resourcefulness. It taught them survival tactics. It taught them, taught them cunning. It taught them teamwork. It taught them stealth. All these things were happening in the lives of these seven, eight, nine-year-old boys to prepare them to become a fierce community of warriors. When they came into the agogi, they were never given shoes. In fact, they'd never get shoes or sandals until 
around the time they'd graduate in their late 20s, and they were taught just to go through life barefooted, to survive in the wilderness without shoes, even in the winter when it would get below freezing. They were given one cloak per year, one red cloak per year. That was their clothing. It was their garment. And they were taught to make do, which meant find ways to keep warm, find ways to survive. They weren't given any really active hands-on care by older people. There was guidance. But largely, it was a community of kids organized in an infrastructure where kids were leading other kids, teaching them teamwork. And all of these things, as psychologically damaging as it must have been, were designed to teach them to be stoic, resilient warriors. And that's different than the way we think about parenting, turns out. Like, substantially. You know, we've learned about emotions and that they're important and uh, learn about parental care and love and that it's important and parental presence and that it's important. And you think about our culture and all the things we focus on where you look at some of these kind of tactics and kind of Spartan life. My goal is not to say that they did it better, obviously, uh, nor that everything they did was deeply wrong. It's just to say it's very different. We don't think when we're raising our kids in this world, we don't think that we're preparing them for war. If we did, we're doing a horrible job. Unless it's like a pixelated zombie coming at you through a screen, and we teach our kids how to hack at trees with their hands in Minecraft and, like, make things. Like, our kids could, like, probably dominate the Spartan kids in Minecraft. Um, I don't even know if there's, like, a winner or a loser in Minecraft, but they'd survive. They'd figure it out. They'd build a hut. It'd be awesome. Uh, Our kids, and again, I, I, I don't say this as some, like, sort of parenting thing. My goal is not to indict anybody in that realm, but it is to say, think about the way we think about the formation of humans in our society, and we are not forming humans in a way that would prepare them for war, whereas the Spartans, that governed everything they thought about in the parental strategies. We are preparing these children to be fierce warriors. Why? Because they knew they were at war. They were perpetually under threat. They were perpetually being attacked. In this particular generation, they were being attacked by the Persians. And they knew that if they didn't raise up a group of highly skilled, thoughtful, mature, resilient warriors from a young age who could survive and have instincts and resourcefulness and teamwork and thoughtfulness and skill, if they didn't do that, they would be defeated by their enemies. And so everything they did was designed at cultivating these resilient warriors. Why do I speak about the Spartans in the beginning of Psalm 129. Because what Psalm 129 is kind of bringing us into is a community that has been perpetually under attack. Perpetually under attack. That has faced opposition to the kingdom of God and to following the ways of God, trusting and obeying God, staying faithful to God's reign and God's goodness. A community that has been perpetually under attack and has survived because of the faithfulness of God and is learning to trust him in the face of these oppositions. And my fear for us as a society, us as a society, is that our faith largely, as Christians in the West, is fragile. A very fragile faith. That we haven't been adequately equipped for the sort of resilient faithfulness to God that life in this world requires of us. And I think there is something for us in Psalm 129 that challenges us, challenges us to wake up to this reality. That your day-to-day life of following Jesus is perpetually under attack. Now, for some of you, you're like, yeah, say it. That's what I feel. 
And some of you are like, oh no, it's one of those churches, you know, and like trying to find the door. Um, It's real. The the word of God over and over and over from the Old Testament to the New frames a lot of following Jesus as a battle. Paul will tell Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. And in fact, in the end of Paul's life, he'll look back on his life and think of all the opposition, all the challenges, all the difficulty, and he will say at the end of his life, I have fought a good fight. I've finished the race. I kept the faith. As something to be celebrated, as something that's not kind of a default reality for everybody. In fact, in those same letters, he'll talk about people who shipwrecked their faith, who fell away from the goodness of God, who fell away from faithfulness to Christ, who fell away from their faith in him and in his gospel. And my fear for us, and and it's a fear that doesn't drive me negatively, but it moves me into this space today with this sort of motivation that we need to grow as people that are aware of the enemies that wage war against our soul. And we need to grow as men and women and children who are cultivating resilient faith to withstand the schemes of the devil and the enemies that are set against the kingdom of God. And that's what this psalm is about. This psalm is about a community who had felt pain and attack and affliction and difficulty their whole existence, but had learned and were learning to trust in the goodness of God and the goodness of God of his reign. And so what I want to do this morning is unpack Psalm 129 uh, really largely in two parts and look at the reality of the enemies that wage war against God's kingdom and look at what it means to cultivate resilient faith in God's goodness and God's reign and look at how that points us to the person and the work of Jesus. Look with me, Psalm 129, starting in verse 1. This is a song of ascents. It's the tenth of the songs of ascents, the songs that were sung by the Israelites on their journey three times per year to Jerusalem to worship together as the people of God. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. The word greatly would probably be better translated like perpetually, continually, on and on again. It's more about frequency and regularity than it is about intensity. And so the Israelites look at their history and they say, we have always been afflicted since the very beginning of our existence from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. As Jacob and his 12 sons made their way, the 12 tribes into Egypt, there's pain from the Egyptians and suffering. They went out of Egypt into the wilderness and there's pain from the Amalekites and pain from different people groups and snakes and hunger and famine and thirst and difficulty through the wilderness, into the promised land, pain from the Canaanites and pain from the Philistines, pain from the Assyrians, pain from the Babylonians, pain from now the Persians, pain from our youth, from the beginning, being a part of the people of God has included and been marked by pain. Pain. It's interesting. I think it's interesting because for us in our culture, we tend to get this idea that it's like supposed to be easy. Like if we do it all right, if we do all the right things in the right ways and we all just do what we're supposed to do, it's just gonna, should be easy. And if all of a sudden there's difficulty or challenges or pain, we're surprised like something strange is happening to us. Like this, this shouldn't be this way. Like this feels odd. What, what happened? In reality, the people of God have faced opposition and difficulty forever. Forever. And as they say this right out of the get-go in Psalm 129, it's like, it's like they're realizing and they want to just take a moment and let the reality of that pain sit. 
And so they pause with this rhetorical poetic device. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let's not move past that pain. It's been continual. It's been hard. It's like they're giving themselves space to reflect on it. It's the first thing I want us to see, that the pain is real. The affliction is real. The challenges, the difficulty, the the times where your faith feels weary. When you feel like you're under siege and it feels like your faith in Christ and in his kingdom is flickering, the, the flame has died down, it's just an ember. When you feel like your knees are getting wobbly in your journey as a disciple of Jesus. When you feel like the doubts are creeping in and cynicism is kind of growing up and pushing out your confidence in Christ, when you feel those things, it's real. It's because there's opposition to your faith. It's because there's difficulties. It's because there are, there are challenges. There are challenges to holding on to faith in Jesus. It's real. And over the past several years, church has taken hits. The church has taken hits. If you look throughout history, through schisms, famines, wars, fighting, corruption, pain, darkness, death, illness, all these things, the church has taken difficult and walked through difficult things, but the church has survived. Survived. Not every person who claims to be a follower of Jesus continues in their faith in Christ, but the church as a whole has survived and grown and multiplied, just like Jesus said it would in his parables, where he talks about he's sowing seeds on the ground. Some spring up and die away. Some spring up and get choked out. Some spring up and bear fruit and bear fruit and bear fruit. For 2,000 years, the church has been bearing fruit, but not without pain. And our existence as a church hasn't been without pain, even over the past few years. The amount of churches that have suffered through a lot of difficulties because of COVID and isolation and sickness and death and then divisions from within their church. It's been real. It's been real. It's been a hard time. The amount of pastor friends I have whose churches have closed, church plants that began and then had to close the doors, churches that have lost hundreds of people or large portions of their people, it's real. That's not trying to indict anybody that leaves the church or speak negatively. It's just been hard. Our church is not exempt from that. We have a lot of people that have left over the past few years, many of them friends, and that's emotionally hard. People working through stuff, sometimes really healthy, sometimes less healthy ways. Again, the goal is not to make an indictment, but just to name the challenge. That's hard. It's hard. And then there's culture wars happening at the same time. So in times where people feel isolated and their faith is under assault in all these other ways, now there's culture wars and it seems like everybody even within the church is picking which side to be on and how to be mad at the other side and creating this infighting that is so anti-kingdom, anti-gospel. Just getting mad at other people and just taking our anxiety and our anger out on others and feeling this fighting. That's hard. That's not something that's just out there. We've, we've felt that. We've felt that. And then for us, very specifically, last year, we had a merger that was really painful at a leadership level, had a lot of tensions and challenges and difficulties that we had to shut down. Many of you were impacted by that. That's hard. Had staff members that left on the heels of that. That's really hard. My point is just that it's hard, and I'm just trying to name it. Those are hard things. And then on the heels of that, there's the confusion that the church body feels as you work through your own questions, your own struggles. And then there's your own journey. There's the sickness that you're struggling with. There's the unfulfilled expectations and the hopes you have in life. 
There's challenges. There's been relational pain and divisions that you've walked through, tensions with your family, friendships that have changed, changes with your roommates, just the weariness of life and your job changed. It's hard. Perpetual difficulty. Greatly, perpetually have we been afflicted since the beginning. Let the people of God now say, it's been a lot. So what do you do? What do you do? One of the ways that the psalmist gives this image, and I love the, the picture in the back. If you, if you get a chance, stop by and just take some time and just meditate on that image. But the image is of Israel as a body on the ground that has just been plowed over, just back and forth, like somebody has taken a plow and just wrenching it through these deep furrows across the back, these stripes that just cut deep, just magnifying this metaphor of pain. And Israel, in this moment, in a moment of corporate worship, together in the temple in Jerusalem, they want to pause and acknowledge the pain of their story and the opposition that they faced since, since the beginning. But what they say in this passage, I think, is, is stunning. Look with me at verse, at verse 2. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The people of God continued. There was always a remnant holding fast to God. People that were working, repenting from their sin, repenting from their idolatry, repenting from the ways that they had turned away from him and continuing to hold fast to to God and to his promises that there would be a day when when God would come and he would send a Messiah, he'd send a king, and that king would bring restoration and healing and forgiveness and grace. And that king, Isaiah would say, would be one who would suffer himself. He'd be like a man of sorrows himself. He'd be acquainted with grief. He'd be a friend of pain and he'd know that pain and he'd be beaten and he'd be pierced and he'd get stripes on his back but it'd be through his pain it'd be through the furrows down his back that the people of God would experience healing there were some who would hold on to that hope hold on to that promise hold on to that reality and continued in faith and the opposition did not prevail And so the question I'm asking when I'm kind of reading through this is are we aware that in the midst of the pain and the difficulty, there is legitimate opposition to your faith? H- have you worked as a follower of Jesus to cultivate, to be, cultivate an awareness that there are enemies to my soul? There are, th- there are forces within me, the Bible calls the flesh. There are spiritual forces that are invisible, the Bible calls the devil and spiritual forces of darkness. And there are realities, cultural currents in the world around us that are all waging war. As we seek to be faithful to Jesus and to follow him in faith, there are things within us, spiritual forces in the world itself, that are pushing us and opposing that journey of faith. The world, the flesh, and the devil. These are a classic kind of like trio of understanding like the enemies of our soul. There's an incredible book written by John Mark Comer that recently came out where he reflects on these enemies of the soul in ways that I think feel really poignant and relevant and accessible to us in our culture. And so I want to read a few quotes. He's going to talk about the devil. He's going to talk about the flesh. I'm going to talk about the world. The devil leads with deceitful ideas that tempt us to turn away, and then he accuses us. The flesh are these internal desires that are set against the reign of God. And the world is this sort of like cumulative whole where we begin to think that rebellion against God, not following the ways of God, feels normal when everybody around us is doing it. So listen to me with me. 
as I read. These are three lines from John Mark Comer's book, Live No Lies. The devil's goal is first isolate us. Isolate us, then implant in our minds deceitful ideas that play to our disordered desires, which we feel comfortable with because they are normalized by the status quo of our society. Notice they are deceitful ideas. That's what the devil does. Play to our disordered desires. That's the flesh, which we feel comfortable with because they're normalized by the status quo of society. That's the world. Specifically, he lies about who God is and who we are and what the good life is with an aim to undermine our trust in God's love and wisdom. His intent is to get us to seize autonomy from God and redefine good and evil for ourselves, thereby leading the ruin of our souls and society. In other words, to say to God, I'm not going to go your way anymore. From the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, you see the goodness of God's reign and Satan's tactic is always God doesn't have your best interest in mind. He's not after your flourishing. He's not after your life. He's trying to hold stuff back from you. Go a different way. If you really want joy, if you really want the good life, you need to go a different way than what God said. That's what the devil has always done. Number two, the flesh. The devil's deceitful ideas are not random. They appeal to our disordered desires or what the New Testament writers call the flesh. The flesh is our animal side, the primal, instinctual drives of self-gratification and self-preservation. The solution is not to white-knuckle our way through, but to live by the power of the Spirit through practices that enable us to draw on the power of God to live in freedom. There's stuff within us that's just perpetually inclined to turn away from God. And it becomes easy when it feels like everybody around us is doing the same thing. So the third is the world. The devil's deceptive ideas get as far as they do because they appeal to our flesh's animal cravings. But these in turn find a home in our bodies through the echo chamber of the world, which allows us to assuage any guilt or shame and live as we please. As a result, evil is often labeled good and good evil. And the soul, sorry, and, the, uh, and society... And the soul and society devolve into a reign of anarchy via the loss of moral and spiritual true north. In such an exilic moment, the church as a counter-anti-culture has the potential to not only survive, but to flourish as a creative minority, loving the host culture from the margins. So here's what I want to do. I just want to talk about what, what does that look like? What does that look like? What does it look like to be in a world where there's spiritual forces of darkness, if you're going to believe the Bible and what it says about an invisible God, it's the same Bible that talks about spiritual forces of darkness that are at animosity to the reign of God, have animosity with the reign of God, and antagonistic towards our own faith. And so what does it look like to live in this world? Here, here's the way this stuff would kind of work out. Is in the world, it seems like, seems like if you get more things and better things, like life will be good. So if you get, like, more family, you get that relationship, you get that spouse, you get kids, then it'll be good. Or if you get a better family, a different relationship or a different spouse or a different family, that, that'll be good. If you get a better job, pays a little bit more, a little more free time, then, then that'll be the good life. Or a better house or a slightly bigger house or more stuff or a different car, or better friends or more friends or more experiences, whatever it is, it's like more and better, more and better. And we live in this like sort of rat race where we're thinking like just more and better, more and better. The problem is it's a lie. It's a deceptive idea. 
You can pay attention to the reality of human history. You can look at the people who have got the more and better that you have. You can ask how it's working out for them. Or you could just introspect for a little minute and say, how's that working out for me? Like, does it feel more and better? Well, like, not yet. It's just the next thing. It's the next relationship. It's the next job. It's the next stage of life. It's the next... And it's a lie. And the lie is compelling because there's something within us that feels like, yeah, that looks appealing. That having a family like that or being single like that looks appealing. Or having a job like that or living in a city like that or living in a house like that or being able to do vacations like that. That's appealing. There's something in us. Does that mean that those are wrong desires? No, but when we put them above the reign of God, they become disordered. And we start living our lives running after it. And it's running away from the goodness of God, his sufficiency, his grace. It doesn't feel that wrong. Why? Because everyone else is doing it. The devil's deceitful ideas that play at our disordered desires, they get normalized in a society that's all running the same way, and it just feels normal. Meanwhile, it's suffocating our faith. It's poking holes in your confidence in God's sufficiency, the goodness of his reign, the joy that he alone provides, the life that he gives, or just the kind of toxic busyness that marks our society. We think... If I just kind of like am doing all the relational stuff and get my kids in these sports or do all these social hangouts and do all these things and get involved in this activity and this activity and just fill up my life like everybody else is, like then I'll feel like I'm doing things that matter and my life will matter. And so we run and we get these ridiculous schedules that do violence to the soul. And we have no time to be still, to rest, to be human, to enjoy God's presence, to listen to his spirit, to be present with people, to be present with our own emotional state. You just run and run and run. Our souls are just getting shriveled up by this toxic busyness. There's something in it that's playing to this, like, this life we long for and it feels normal because everyone else is doing it. Or when you start doing that and you feel this kind of ambient anxiety or this ambient depression that starts just kind of lingering over all of life. You just feel like broadly like, ugh, about life, you know? Um, this is not that great, but again, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm doing the same thing everybody else is, and I'm withering a little bit, but it's hard to be honest about because maybe it's just the next thing, and then I'll get there. All right, so you feel the anxiety, you feel the depression, and then what do you do? You, you want to rest. You've got to find a way to deal with that. So you've got some options. It's a lot of escapist kind of behaviors just to numb that, dull that a little bit, right? So we can dole that a little bit by continuing to stay busy with work. We can dole that a little bit by kind of being busy with activity. We can dole that a little bit by binging on your kind of like media of choice, social media, TV, video games, whatever it might be, movies, just reading the next kind of like novel just to kind of keep your mind off the pain of life. Or you can jump to substances. You can eat Normal foods, just go to food. Just run to food to numb it a little bit. If when I eat or when I do drugs or when I look at porn or when I kind of run to this kind of substance or I run to alcohol just to take the edge off or I run to weed just to chill out a bit or I run to this other thing to give me the next high. Whatever it might be, we just kind of run to the, we're just trying to escape the pain. And some of those things are inherently wrong. Some of them aren't inherently wrong, but we keep running to them. Why? It's what everybody else, we're just all doing it. These are deceptive ideas that are playing to disordered desires that are normalized in our society and our, and our faith is, is under attack. And so we're like growing up together and we haven't learned any kind of tactics for being resilient warriors in our faith because we're not aware that we're under attack. But we are. We are. And I just like, I've been praying this week, like, God, just wake, wake us up to the reality of the universe 
that you're the king, you're on a throne, you're good, life is found in your presence, joy is with you, your way is good, your righteousness is good, your presence is good, your wisdom for life is good. Wake us up to the reality that there are things pushing us in the other way, pushing us in the other way. These things are all around us, and there are so many others that wage war against our soul, and we need to wake up to the reality that we live in a world where there are enemies, and it is not flesh and blood, it is not the progressives, and it's not the conservatives, and it's not these guys, and that, it's not your neighbor, it's not that person that took your parking spot, it's not that roommate that doesn't do the dishes, it's not your spouse, it's not the kids, it's not, it's not all of these other people. There's a devil who's waging war, there's flesh within us, and there are forces around us, even within the world, that turn us away from God's goodness and reign. And so what do the people of Israel do? Well, they're doing it right now in Psalm 129. They gather together and they name the reality. They name the reality. And then they confess together what they know to be true. They confess this faith. Look at verse 4. It says this. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Instead of saying, we've got to figure this out and we've got to white knuckle it and we've got we to beat out our own flesh and if I just have more self-control, then it'll be better. And if I just can like, just be aware of the enemy and just kind of like, you know, do all these things and if I just try harder and will myself to be a better person and will myself to, to kind of be more disciplined and will myself to whatever, that's not what they do. They turn first to confess it's the Lord who has the power to break those chains. It's the Lord who has the power to set us free from these oppositions. It's the Lord who has the power through his spirit to put to death the flesh that wages war against our soul. It's the Lord who has the power to break the power of the enemy by canceling our record of debt, by showing us grace and mercy, not through fear and guilt and shame, but redeeming us from that into his love and his goodness and his nearness. It's the Lord who has the ability to build a community of people who are by no means perfect, but together, together, like the Israelites here in Psalm 129 are saying, we're going a different way. We're going to go a different way. We're going to run together. We're going to trust God together. We're going to trust the goodness of his reign. He is righteous. He does what is right. And he has the power to break the cords of the wicked. And then the psalmist kind of breaks into four verses of what we call imprecations, which are really fun to preach about. Um, it's basically where they pray God's judgment on their enemies, which like doesn't make it into most worship songs these days. Um, this particular imprecation is kind of like an anti-blessing. You know the blessing song we sang the other, other day where it's like, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious. This is like the opposite. It's looking at the enemies and it's like, the Lord curse you and defeat you, you know, make all your ways be fruitless and bring shame upon you. You know, it's like, they're just like looking at their enemies and like, I, I can't imagine Carrie Job in Elevation Worship singing that, but they could give it a shot. Give it a shot. But they're praying these things. So what, what's going on? This isn't vindication. It's not like this, or it's not like, like this vindictive spirit. It's not resentment against, again, somebody who's just bothering you. Look at what it says in verse 5. May all who hate Zion. These are people and powers and forces that have put themselves against the reign of God. And essentially what the people of God are doing here is they're praying this simple prayer. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. How so? How is this prayer, let your kingdom come? Because from the beginning, from Genesis 1, God said, I've given you life. I've given you love. I've, I've brought you into this world. and I'm with you and I'm here for you and I want you to flourish. And what he promises humanity in his presence as they 
Rejoice and live in his presence and trust in his word. What he promises is life to the full. Abundant, flourishing, blessed life with him. But he says from the beginning, if you seize autonomy and you rebel against my kingdom and you take the fruit of that tree that I told you not to take and you go a different way, you will surely die. In other words, from the beginning, the framework of God's kingdom is trust the king, trust his presence, trust his love, trust his wisdom, and there's life to the full. Reject the king, reject his reign, reject his goodness, believe the lies of the enemy, go your own way, and it's death and pain. And what the people are praying here is they're praying essentially, Lord, that, that destruction that you promised comes when people reject your reign. Bring it upon them, not vindictively, but to help them taste and see that life apart from the reign of God leads to death. Remind us that life following you, even in the face of pain, even in the face of temptation, even in the face of hardship, following you faithfully leads to life. God, bring those kingdom realities to bear. When it feels like the wicked are prospering and we're suffering, bring the kingdom where there's life and goodness and joy for your people, where those who reject you face the consequences of what that rejection leads to. I think about Psalm chapter 1, which frames the whole Psalter, all the books of a book of the Psalms, and it essentially is this framework. It's that same framework. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but the one who's blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, delights in the instructions of God. And on his law, he meditates day and night. That person is like a tree that's planted by streams of water, and it yields fruit in its season, and its, weath, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And it says, but the wicked are not so. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. What they're praying is they're praying that into reality. They're praying, God, bring that day when the true reality, the true reality that's faith in you, trust in you, that leads to life, and rebellion against you leads to death. Bring the kingdom. Now, the reality is we all find in our own lives our propensity to turn away from God's reign. We've all, we've all in, the, in the Bible terminology, sinned. We've all turned from God's wisdom. We've turned from God's ways. And a part of the pain that we feel in life, and hear me, I'm going to be nuanced when I say this, a part of the pain we feel in life is a result of our humanity's rebellion against God. That doesn't mean that every pain you experience is a direct result of something you did, but the reality of living in a life east of Eden, outside God's presence, in a world that's marked by brokenness and pain is because we all, like sheep, went astray. We turned all of us to our own way. But the promise of God is that the Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Jesus came into this world with faithfulness. He came into this world and he experienced pain from the beginning. The Herod sending people to kill the the sons in Bethlehem, the pain and the difficulty experienced from every moment of his journey, being faithful to the Father, dependent on the Spirit, laying down his life for others. He was experiencing opposition, difficulty, setback, but he endured. He endured with faithfulness. He endured because of his love for you. He endured because of his trust in the Father. He endured with reliance on the Holy Spirit. And he fought the good fight of faith. And he endured for the sake of redeeming us with his stripes, healing, forgiving, 
redeeming and inviting all who would turn to him, all who would trust in him to come and to look to him, not just as an example, but as the power to release us from bondage. And there are men and women and children who have been faithfully following Jesus for millennia. In the face of pain, in the face of hardship, in the face of difficulty. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12, and I'll close with this. Hebrews 11 is a whole story of people that were faithful to Jesus in the face of difficulty. In their own culture's version of pandemics and divisions and brokenness and pain and failures. In their own culture's experience of opposition and affliction. They stayed faithful. They held on to him. They kept looking to Jesus reminding themselves that the way of following Jesus has always been marked by difficulty. We're going to hold on to Jesus, believing not just in his death for us, but in the resurrection life that he has opened up on our behalf. So Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, saying like right now there is a testimony, there are stories of men and women and children who've been faithful to God throughout the ages in hard, hard stuff, and they stuck with Jesus and his people. They endured. They endured. And we're surrounded by this community of people that testify that it was worth it. It was worth it. And say, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely, and let us Run with endurance. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Jesus, would you help us even now to look to you? To look to you, your endurance, your endurance in the face of opposition, your endurance in the face of the devil who tempted you to turn from God's goodness, from God's reign, to turn towards self-sufficiency, to turn towards your own path. And you endured, you resisted him in faith. Help us to look to you in the way you emptied yourself not merely in obedience to the Father, but also as an expression of love for people like me who had turned against you, run to my own devices. Help us look to you not just as an example of endurance, but as the one who's broken the chains, canceled the debt, you've forgiven our trespasses. You've shown us faithful love even while we are still sinners. And so help us to run with endurance, not motivated by fear, but with confidence, with joy, with faith, following your leadership in our lives. God, I pray you pour out grace on us as a community that this church, this generation, would follow faithfully. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I want to encourage you just to take a moment and consider where you feel affliction, where you felt pain or opposition to your own faith, where your faith feels fragile, maybe where you feel the stress fractures, if you imagine a dam starting to crack, where do you see those cracks? Just to take a moment and bring those to Jesus and say, God, I'm here and I need you to strengthen my faith. I need you to heal some things and restore to me the joy of my salvation. 
Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.